page number 97. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise to the Page number 240, O Sacred Head Now Wounded.
Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming out this evening. Um, as long as all of you saw in the bulletin, we have a Thanksgiving-themed evening. As obviously it was just Thanksgiving, but um, I just, as you recall, as a and when I was at school over Thanksgiving, it was very typical for us to have a whole blank chalkboard and the teacher would say, so what are you all thankful for? And we would all give these all lists of all the things we're thankful for. And somewhere in there, I'm pretty sure there would be at least one God, or at least I'm thankful for God. Um, and I've been thinking about that a good bit. What am I most thankful for? Am I, am I thankful for God, just God? Or am I thankful for all these things that God gives me before I'm thankful for God? If you follow me. Turn with me to Exodus 16. <coughs> to bring about what actually has my mind there mostly is um, a few weeks ago, I told some of my friends this, some of you in here will know this, but I told, I had a dream that I was either driving, walking, I don't remember what, but I had an exit sign and it said, God, or I don't, I don't remember what the other way said, but I know I chose the God way. And that has me thinking, like, and I know that when I chose that way, I know I processed God's way means giving up or spending time with God and not just doing what I want to do when I want to do it, but also believing that God is there in everything and believing that God will carry me through everything. Um... So that is kind of the backdrop for me, for my, for my point of view, and I wanted you to bring in that, bring you guys in that with me. Um, so back to Exodus 16, we have the Israelites on their long, long journey to the promised land, and I mean, we all know the story of how God brought them out of Egypt, um, and we all know the, how they disrespected God. But let's read... Um, Exodus 16, and I'm going to highlight a few things out of here then, and I'm going to be reading this in the New King James Version. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the brethren of Israel came to, wilderness, came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, of meat and we, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that's where I'm going to stop. As we, I mean, you can see that they were remembering all the fine things they had in Egypt and how they could eat to their heart's content. And now they're saying, hey, look, you brought us out here to just kill us all or to have us all die. And they weren't seeing or they 
they could not see God's greater plan for them as a nation and could not see that they were going to be used by God and wanted by God for something great. And we can see that it, this was very soon after they, after they were brought out of Egypt. Um, 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. I mean, that's, this, is, this is a matter of less than three months later. And so often for me in my life, I can also forget where God has brought me just a couple days later after he brings you out of something, brings me out of something. So that is my challenge for you for a short devotional, that God is always with us. And God, he's, very, he's easy to forget in a matter of a couple months or a couple, couple days or to forget about that one incident. But I'm going to challenge you to be, to be more thankful for God and to be more thankful for the journey he has brought you on and the journey he is going to take you on because it is unknown to us our journey in the moment. You don't know what you're going to do tomorrow necessarily, completely. But life is an adventure, and I encourage you all to live that way with the sense of adventure, to seek God in that adventure. Could you all stand with me for prayer? Father, thank you so much for tonight, and thank you that you are who you are, and thank you that we have you to look to, and thank you that you bring us into situations where we need you, and thank you that you bring us happiness and joy, but also thank you, first of all, that you care about us and that you want each of us with you someday. And God, just be with us here this evening and bless our evening as we hear about different things of thankfulness and how that you how that some people demonstrated it. And God, just be with the speakers here this evening and bless them as well. Place on your name, amen. You may be seated. For an order of service this evening, we're going to be having children's class right next, and Lavelle Byler is going to be um, speaking there. And then we're going to be having a history of Thanksgiving by Virgil Nisley. And then we're going to be having... Um, hit, Examples of Thanksgiving from the Old Testament by Joseph Peachy, and then examples from the New Testament by Brandon Esch. So at this time, all the children that are here may come forward for children's class with Lavelle. Good evening, boys and girls. Good evening. Oh, good job, Nathan. <laughs> Tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about following directions. Why, why, would, why do you think I would talk about following directions? Any ideas? Do people sometimes need reminders to follow directions or forget to follow directions? Okay, so we're, we're going to do a little bit of an object lesson. What, what, is, what is this thing? Caitlin? It's a fake one. How do you know it's fake? Does it say fake on there? So it's fake. Where does it come from? Does anybody know? Where, 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 did I just make a fake one or is this used for something? So in Monopoly, this would
would maybe help you with something. How much is this thing worth? Caitlin? So in Monopoly, it's worth 20. I would go to a store and try to buy something with this. What do you think they would say? Go ahead. Yeah, I might even get in trouble for trying to buy something with... Well, this one doesn't look very real, so they probably wouldn't get in very big trouble. How about if I'd go to the store and try to buy something with this? Would that work, do you think? This one, do you think this is real? Yeah, this one, this one is real. So this would work. So when we go to a store to buy something, there are certain directions we have to follow. And using real money is one of those. Um, most of you, I know some of you, are in school and have to follow directions. And it might say at the top of uh, something in one of your books that you have to do it this way or this way. And sometimes the teacher might change that a little bit. But there's other ways in life where we need to follow directions too, other places in life. What are some things, maybe when you're older, that you'll have to follow directions that won't be in your math book that says do these uh, problems this way, but it might be something else. Anybody have any ideas what some other ways, other than using the right money when you try to buy something? No ideas. So if you go to a street and it says, if you have your driver's license and you find a street that says one-way street and you go the wrong way down that street, is that a good idea? No. So following directions, there are lots and lots of ways if you're building a house and you do it the wrong way or there are other ways where if we don't follow directions, it will be bad news. There are a couple people in the Bible that I want to look, talk about a little bit. Two stories, two different ones. One is maybe more familiar um, of people that did not follow directions. So way in, back in the book of Genesis, <clears throat> God told Cain and Abel to bring a sacrifice. And they both brought a sacrifice. What did Abel bring? You probably know this story. What did Abel bring for the sacrifice? Joshua. A lamb, and what did Cain bring? Fruit, yeah, somebody said fruit. He brought stuff from the ground. What did God require for a sacrifice? Go ahead. He wanted a lamb. Do you think Cain knew that? Cain was a farmer, and so maybe his stuff that he grew was handier, but Cain knew that he was supposed to bring a lamb, but he didn't follow directions. And eventually that caused him to get so mad at Abel that he killed him. And then he was separated from God and from the rest of the people. There's another story in Leviticus 10. And this is about Nadab and Abihu. Does anybody know who they were? You ever hear those names before? Nadab and Abihu. So their dad's name was Aaron. Does that give you any hints? So Nadab and Abihu were supposed to be priests but they had little censers where they would bring fire in and they put strange fire in their censers. God required fire from the altar and they were supposed to follow certain procedures to do their sacrifice. And they brought strange fire and they were not following God's directions. And what happened to them? They died. Well, you might be thinking of two other guys that didn't do a good job of being priests. They died. Nathan, do you know how it was? Yeah, they died with fire. God sent fire down, and they died because they did not follow God's directions. So we see how sometimes in the Bible it gives serious consequences for not following directions. 
So if we forget to do something in our homework or do something a little wrong, maybe that brings a few consequences. But forgetting to follow God's directions that he gives us in his book are going to bring much bigger consequences. All right, that's all I have. You can go back to your parents. Okay, good evening, welcome. Um, this is going to be a little bit different. I was told to talk about the history of Thanksgiving. So I teach at a school, so I think I'm gonna think about it a little bit more like a class. So I don't know if you look at this picture or not. You can see some Indians over here. I don't know if you can tell or not, but they're not exactly dressed like the Wampanoaga Indians would have been dressed. Um, this is an artist's rendition of how they think it would have looked. Um, you can see some Indian headdresses from the Plains Indians over there. Um, you can see some people without shirts on over there. And it's December or November in Connecticut. It's not warm at all. So I don't know what you know about Thanksgiving, but I want to give a, my best shot at helping you understand why some of the roots of Thanksgiving are a little bit controversial, and hopefully you know a few more things about how things work. So, three things I'm gonna to do tonight is I'm gonna talk about the Pilgrim's European background, and the question is, did the Pilgrims read KJV Bible? Think about that. We might get there. Um, and then we're going to talk about the Indians and the pilgrims meeting. And finally, we'll talk about a little bit about the modern celebration of Thanksgiving. So to start out with, we've got to talk about this guy named John Wycliffe. He's an English guy. Um, the, the Protestants, uh, the Catholics don't like him. Um, he translates the Wycliffe Bible. It's a pretty good Bible. It has some translation issues, but it's a pretty good Bible. Um, but the Catholics end up burning him and, or killing him somehow, and he doesn't make it. Um, so this is uh, 1384. This is about 200 years, 100 years, 1 to 200 years before this. So we're talking about England, this guy named Martin Luther, 1509, nails the 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. And his writings were circulated throughout, the, throughout England. And so that uh, sets the stage, too, for Anabaptists, 1525, Schleitheim Confession of Faith. This is also in Germany, um, those areas. And so now we get to Henry VIII. Of England. Now, Henry VIII is a very, very interesting character. 
as you can see over here on the left. Um, he is the ruler of the small, relatively small country of England. He lives in sort of the shadow of Spain. Spain has discovered the New World, and it's making a lot of money for them. Spain is Roman Catholic and is strong Roman Catholic. They've prosecuted the Inquisition now for 100 years or so, and they are the real Roman Catholics here. Henry VIII wants to make a name for himself, and he's poor. So, I can't... Uh, I'm, my slides aren't loading, so I'm kind of in trouble here. Okay, so he has a small country. The land in his country belongs to the Catholic Church. A fifth to a third of the land belongs to the Catholic Church, and all the tithes and revenues from that land goes directly to the Pope. So this king is kind of poor. He has a problem. Um, he also thinks the Pope isn't that cool because it takes away, um, takes away his power. He also has another problem. Um, the problem is he doesn't have any male heirs. And that's a big problem. Um, his wife of 20 years has only produced one daughter. And it's a problem. So he tries to get the Pope to annul his marriage. Which doesn't work out that well after you've been married for 20 years and the Pope doesn't like you anyway. So we have a solution for him. He, his solution is just make your own church. Then you can claim all the land that belongs to these, these uh, Catholic churches and you can say that your wife isn't married to you anymore. And plus Luther and Wycliffe and guys like that, they make it sound like it's not that important to submit to the Pope after all. So here we have Henry VIII, king, uh, uh, head of the Church of England. Um, so now we have a list of some of the people in his family. It's a little bit complicated because we have Henry VIII in the middle. He has lots, his six wives. In school we have the saying, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. That's what happened to his six wives as he's trying to get a male heir. He only has one male heir, Edward VI, who is crowned king at about age five or six, lives for five years or ten years under the care of regents, and firmly Protestant, firmly Protestant guy. He even goes further than Henry VIII. Henry VIII said, look, I'll be the pope. I mean, basically, I'll be the pope now. But Edward VI says, no, 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 let's, let's have our own church system and we'll start to get a little Lutheran. But we'll still call it Anglican. He dies and it pulls it up, whatever. He dies and his sister, Queen Bloody Mary, comes to the throne. She reigns for about five years. She has an unpopular, um, unpopular marriage with the King of Spain. And she burns 280 heretics in her five years, people who thought that Protestant, the Protestant way of life was better. This will go. Anyway, it doesn't work.
God bless our technology. progress now. Okay, so she has a sister. She has a sister named Queen Elizabeth. Good, 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 good. She dies after five years mysteriously, and she has a sister named Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth reigns from 1558 to 1603. You can see three important things about Queen Elizabeth in this picture. She is... Wealthy, number one. She's a Protestant, but she's wealthy. Um, you can see ships over there, Sir Francis Drake and um, pirates. Uh, they're not rich like the Spanish, but she makes deals with uh, pirates to let them kind of do what they want to with Spanish ships. Um, and over on the right-hand side, you see the Spanish, the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 or something like that. So, um, Queen Elizabeth makes Protestantism practical and wealthy and things like that. The problem with Queen Elizabeth, she was married to her country. I mean, married to her country. So, she didn't get married. She didn't have any heirs. So, what is she going to do? Well, good luck. It doesn't show. Okay. Good luck. There's a guy named... King James VI of Scotland, who's been reigning for 35 years already, and he becomes king of England as well. So now we have the King James VI of Scotland turns into King James VI of Scotland and Ireland and King of England. So it all comes together under this Great Britain. Um, king James is also the King James who, it's terrible, I can't get this thing. Um, he, was, he was pretty open to different congregations and different ways, Protestant ways of doing things. But then the problem is there's the gunpowder plot. And some Protestant guys who didn't like the way church was being run said, we're going to try to get rid of him. And after that, he shut things down pretty bad. Um, 1605 or so, he makes a fine on not going to the Church of England. $20 a week or that you don't show up. Um, so $20 a week if you don't show up. And the Congregationalist churches did not like this. Um, he also did the authorized the King James Version. Think about King James Version Bible, you can see... Um, they didn't have all the letters that we have today. Um, the earlier Bibles were sectarian Bibles. They couldn't get the Puritans and the couldn't get the Puritans and the Church of England people to agree on what a good Bible should be, and especially on translations of specific words about grace and things like that. So this is the first Bible that they had multiple denominations of people working on the same Bible and coming up with a mutually agreeable solution. Yeah. All right. So the groups of people you need to know about in England, we have the Roman Catholics. They, they stay Roman Catholic all the time. 
Um, then you have the Anglican High Church. That's the Church of England that King, that King Henry VIII was a part of, the new head. He made his own church so he could get divorced. And then you have the Low Church. Um, it's a little more Calvinistic. Um, you have the separatists. The separatists said, you know what? The church is so bad, we're not going to be a part of it. The Puritans said, you know what? The church is bad, but we want to fix it. So we'll try to fix our own local congregations, but we won't separate. So the, press, the sep separatists moved across the river, across the ocean here in the, the channel, to Holland. Which, if you remember, that's about the same place where Menno Simons was, did his work in the late 1500s. Um, they just recovered from a war with Spain, and they're proudly independent and happy to be accepting of all religions. So the separatists move over to Holland, and over in Holland, the pilgrims, um, they stay there for 11 years from... 1609, which you can see a church building of these separatists who met in separate places until they had to pay the $20 fine a week and plus other things to uh, the government. So they moved to Leiden and the Baptists also move about the same time, although they're separatists, a little different group. Um, interesting thing to me, I didn't know before the study, that the Baptists actually, uh, they're like... Anabaptists. They didn't want to be called Anabaptists. Um, they're not like Anabaptists in that they don't believe in eternal... Okay, Anabaptists don't believe in eternal security, while the Baptists did, but were otherwise Arminians. So you could call an, a Baptist. The original Baptists were Anabaptists that believed in eternal security. I mean, sort of like that, but they're English. That's the big thing. They're English. And they did meet with the Anabaptists a little bit, but not enough to... They separated again and went their own way. So the Pilgrims and Baptists, both separatist movements, move across. They stay there for 11 years. Their children start joining the army, and they're like, no, this is not good. Uh, plus there's threat of a war with Spain. Things are not going well. So we're going to face the challenges. Um... Okay, so a few things to keep in mind. They're trying to move to the New World now. These, this group of people that have been kicked out by King James I are trying to move to the New World because Holland isn't good enough for them anymore. Um, so they, they want to go to the New World. They want to go to an English place, but not too English. So you can see the Jamestown Fort up there. That's a great fort. It's established in 1609, so this is 11 years later. They could probably be safe there, and not too many of them would die if they would move to this place. But they don't want to be under the English government like they would have had to been if they were too close to Jamestown. So they decide they're going to settle close. You can see that there were charters of land given to the Plymouth Company and the London Company. Um, these are the names of cities in England and their land goes, it, it only shows out by the coast, but the way that it's written up, their land goes from coast sea to sea, like it goes out, out to, the, to the Pacific Ocean, but they only have that part there. So they say this is good land to settle, so they start to try to move off. Um, we have the Speedwell, is a ship that the pilgrims 
found in Leiden, and they take it over to Southampton. By the way, these pilgrims are from Scrooby, and Scrooby is another word for uh, Nottinghamshire is the land that they're from. And if you've ever heard of Robin Hood, have you ever heard of Nottingham? There you go. Um, Nottinghamshire. So they, they go over to Southampton, pick up the Mayflower, which is a leased ship because they didn't have enough room for everyone on the Mayflower. Um, they go sail to Dartmouth and to Plymouth. And I don't... There's a lot of these names. It's so interesting once you start looking at the names of places in Britain. There are so many places in Britain that have, like, I know that name. The Red Rose of Lancaster comes from the House of Lancaster. In Bloody Mary's picture, she has, she's holding a red rose, which, from the House of Lancaster. Um, okay, so they move. They go across the water. Uh, so basically, their journey takes three months. First month, they try to sail, but the problem is the Speedwell has boat problems. It's their own ship, but it, it leaks. So they go back, and they mess around, spend a month doing that. Then they get on, um, they put everyone on the Mayflower, 104 people on the Mayflower. It's not a very big ship. I don't know the exact dimensions, but certainly smaller than the sanctuary here. Um, and they sail across the ocean to the place where they're going. It takes them 66 days on the water. 66 days on the water since they left. And they get over over to Provincetown, November 21st, 1620. A few things here, that little dot down there is Lancaster. Up there, the dot is um, Hampton. That, that about the right area? And Providence, you can see the, the Cape Cod there. And they sail in, and along the way, they step ashore a couple places, try to get some supplies. They dig up a few Indian supplies, get tens of bushels of grain, search through a few English, uh, few Indian graves, get some pretty things out of there, and move on their way. Um, a thing to remember about this is the British pirates are coming in here. They land, um, talk to the natives, trade a little fur, and then they generally pick up a few captives and take them back to England. Um, Squanto being a main example of a captive who returned to Eng he returned to England on the way back. He was stopped by a Spanish ship, went to Spain, escaped from Spain to England, and came back to um, this area. When he came back, he discovered his village was empty. Um, you can see up here is where the Plymouth Colony ends up being. And fortunately for the settlers, there had been a big plague because when the English fur traders went ashore, they um, brought smallpox and a couple things like that. Ninety Sources say around 90% of the Indians in the area were knocked out. 90% um, of the Indian tribes in the area were knocked out. So there was actually space for them to be. When they came ashore, um, they didn't see Indians for four months. But the Indians were still there. They just were negotiating treaties with 
each other and they're just not sure what to do. Nine-tenths of your people are killed, that's a big problem. So the success of this guy, Squanto, is he meets these pilgrims. This is uh, Plymouth Plantation. He meets these pilgrims and is able to find a place for them among the Indians and negotiates new treaties between the Indians and the white men so that they can stay there without being uh, molested too much. Um, yeah, the first winter's really bad. You have two to three people. They got there on December 21st. Imagine getting to Connecticut December 21st and you're going to survive the winter. And you're in bad shape from being on the, on the water for two or three months. So they spend, yeah, two or three people die a day. And by the next fall, we have half the people dead um, on the original Mayflower. A um, couple more things about this. Yeah, Squanto came and he, he taught them about fertilizing their fields. Um, other things like that. We don't know if he got those from Indians or if he actually got them from, from the white men when he was visiting over in England. Um, and here we have a traditional Thanksgiving feast, which is not, we don't really know. Hey. Um, we know that there are 90 Indians there, 54 white men. Um, we know the feast can had waterfowl. The Indians brought five deer. There's ham, lobster, clabs, ber clams, berries, fruit, pumpkin, and squash. So that's the first Thanksgiving. Um, I, there's tons more you can learn about that. If there's plenty to learn about that. Um, but I do want to show you about a few other people. So they only celebrated Thanksgiving in 1621 after it's their first harvest. They only celebrated then, and then they celebrated again in 23. And then in 1637, after they successfully massacred the Puritans and the pilgrims, uh, successfully took out like 700 people in a village, and the Pequot War was over. Um, this guy, John Winthrop, um, declared a Thanksgiving Day. Um, George Washington, 1777, declared a National Thanksgiving Day on the fourth Thursday of November. Uh, and also in 1779. This is right after they won some victories in the, in the Revolutionary War. And this lady wrote letters to five consecutive presidents saying you should declare Thanksgiving Day. And in uh, six, 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared the first official Thanksgiving Day, um, the first annual one, the one that repeats over and over. Okay, so in summary, I'm not sure what to tell you about Thanksgiving Day. Um, the Indians feel very many mixed feelings about Thanksgiving Day for how they were misrepresented and how it's really the beginning of the end for the Indians in North America. Um, so we need to be kind about that. But on the other hand, it is a day of Thanksgiving and a day of family, community, and even the Indians today will say that.
So I don't think we have to tread too softly around Thanksgiving Day. We can enjoy it as a harvest feast. And the Indians, in general, um, thought that every day was a harvest feast. Why is this day special? But the white men celebrated on one day, and we do well to celebrate on one day as well. So thank you all for your time, and God bless you. Good evening. My topic tonight is um, examples of thankfulness in the Old Testament. Um, I want to first talk a little bit about thankf thankfulness. What does it mean to be thankful or even to have a thankful spirit? What do you, what do you think about when you think about Thanksgiving? Um, does it mean at Thanksgiving Day or around Thanksgiving, there's a couple of days that you specifically spend time to thank God for all the blessings he's blessed us with? Is that, is that what Thanksgiving's all about? No, I think it's lots more than that. It doesn't mean even throughout the year, the whole year, that we remember to say thank you when people bless us with things. No, I think it's even more than that. Being thankful, I think, is living a lifestyle of thankfulness and also contentment every day of our life, every day that we have breath. And the definition of thankfulness is to give praise or to give thanks and to praise. Contentment is a state of happiness and satisfaction, a mind contented with its lot in life. That's what contentment is. And just a few thoughts here on contentment and thankfulness. When we learn to be truly thankful, we open the door to contentment. You know, are we okay when, when we don't get everything that we think we need and that we're grateful for the things that we do have and are content with it? And I think thankfulness and gratitude um, requires humility. If you think about it a little bit, um, when we receive, is, yeah, it requires humility. We're receiving something um, that we didn't re that we didn't deserve. Um, Yushi is when we receive something. It's something that we did not re deserve. Here's a line that I um, saw online: "Content people may not have the best of everything." but they make the most of everything. The content person makes the most of everything. He doesn't have the best of everything, but he, had, he makes the most of everything. Um, there's some verses I want to read about contentment, and this one verse I really appreciate and think about a lot is 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I could say godliness with contentment is gain, but it says it's great gain. I think that's interesting that he used the word great. It's a great game. And verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. To be content no matter what's happening in your life. Hebrews 13.5, let your conversation be without covetousness. And that word conversation is the manner of life. It doesn't mean talking, but the manner of life. Let your manner of life be without co covetousness. 
and be content with such things as ye have. And he gives a reason. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. That's why we can be content, because God is always with us. Now going into um, the character that I thought about um, in the Old Testament, and I wasn't sure if it was a couple different characters I was supposed to cover, but I just picked one. But anyway, so be it. But um, one, one person I right away thought about was Daniel. Um, there's not a, a whole lot of times in the book of Daniel where it says that he gave thanks. There's a few times. Um, but I think in his life, he showed thankfulness. He showed gratitude in his life in spite of what he was going through. Um, he didn't complain. I don't think there's anything recorded in Daniel about how he complained um, and have a negative attitude. But he recognized that there is a God in heaven watching over him. And he used that word God in heaven um, somewhere in Daniel, Daniel 2, I think. I just want to go over some of the events in his life um, that I think exemplified um, a grateful spirit that he had. Um, and remember what I said, a grateful person does not focus on himself, but is content in the situation that he's in. And there's a couple different events that happened in his life that I want to go over. But, um, number one, well, we rem remember in chapter one that um, he was taken away captive um, from his homeland, place he was familiar with, taken away from his family, and all the familiar surroundings um, that, he, that he was used to. Um, but it says in verse 8 of Daniel 1, Daniel purposed in his heart um, to keep himself pure and to commit himself to God in spite of living in a pagan land. And I think that was, that's a sign of his gratitude towards God, what he did, what God did for him. Um, he purposed to keep himself pure. You know, he was... He was allowed to, or the king was going to give him food to eat for three years. And food in some way to the Jewish law that was forbidden to eat. And I'm not sure exactly what that was. But some, somehow there was con contradiction to um, Daniel's law. And he was faithful. Um, he purposed in his heart. And because of that, because of his faithfulness to God... It says that God gave Daniel knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. He also had understanding in visions and dreams. And the next event um, where it shows where he showed thankfulness or gratitude um, to God. In Daniel 2, it talks about that the king had a dream, and it was a dream that even the king could remember. And he called all the wise men in, but they couldn't, they couldn't come up with the dream. Um, but somehow Daniel heard about the dream and went with his friends um, to God in prayer, to the God of heaven. And God heard his prayer, and um, he revealed the dream, the king's dream, to Daniel. Well, then we see one of the first things that Daniel did was he blessed, the, blessed God for giving him the interpretation. Even though he was away from home, um, away from the familiar things at home, he um, remembered to thank God um, for what he did um, his life at this time. Um, the king, or Daniel, went to the king and told him what the dream was. 
And we see what um, Daniel did. Um, he didn't give credit to himself. He gave credit to God. And I just want to read um, Daniel 2, 27 to 28. It just talks about um, Daniel's response to the king and drawing the king's focused on God. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth dream, that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. So yeah, he caused the king's focus to um, go on to to go to God. Um, he's expressing gratitude um, to what God can do in his life. We see the same thing happen in chapter 4. Um, the, king, the king again had a dream. And again, um, Daniel turns the king's focus to God instead of Daniel being the... In, as he, Daniel turns the king's focus to God as the interpreter of the dreams, not to Daniel. Now I just want to read um, Daniel 4. Let me just say this too. This was the time when the king had this dream about going out into the, um, driving out for, away from people as, and coming as a beast. And when he became a man again, um, I just want to read what he says in Daniel 4, 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. So here we see that Nebuchadnezzar even gave praise himself to God. It wasn't Daniel, but it was Nebuchadnezzar that gave praise to God. And I... I kind of think, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar didn't do that because of Daniel's life. Um, I, I'm not sure. But I'm just kind of only, only imagining that um, it was because of Daniel that um, the king expressed gratitude to God. And that can be a challenge for us, you know, if we think about that. How do we live our life? Are we living a life of thankfulness? Um, I believe our life contentment and a life of gratitude can have an impact on others. All right, another um, event in Daniel's life that um, he showed gratitude. So Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6, there was a decree that everyone should worship the king um, for like 30 days, I think it was, and no one else but the king. They're, everyone was supposed to worship the king. And if they didn't, they were to be cast in the lion's den. Daniel heard this. He heard the decree, but um, he didn't stop. I just want to read Daniel 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and prayed that God would protect him and save him from the lion's den. Is that what it says? No, it says... He prayed and gave thanks before God as he did before times. I think that's amazing. Daniel's life was just about ready to go out the door or however you want to say. Um, there was not much hope for him, but he 
gave thanks instead of pleading for, to God for his life. We see almost, let me say, almost, almost nothing was going right for Daniel. Almost nothing was going right for Daniel in our eyes. But in God's eyes, everything was going right for him. And I think sometimes we get that a little bit, little bit mixed up in, in life. We focus too much on the um, bad things that come our way, um, and we forget the good things that God has given us and blessed us with. And I think when we give thanks and praise to God, um, our big problems don't seem as big anymore because of where our focus is at. And let's remember that. Put our focus on God and the blessings that he has blessed us with, even though we may be facing something big and um, whatever it may be. Focus on God. He has blessed us so much. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to um, grasp uh, what, what he has blessed us. Even if we have nothing, he has blessed us so much. Let us remember, like Daniel, to, to make the most of the situation that we are in and to be content with what God brings our way. And let me just quote this verse again, Philippian, or 1 Timothy 6, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Thanks for your attention. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. I'm still maybe trying to be grateful about being here this evening, but oh well, I'm here anyway. Um, and I enjoyed learning a little more about Thanksgiving. I, I don't, uh, yeah, I didn't know all that stuff that uh, about Thanksgiving that Virgil taught us, and it was, it was very good to hear that. Um, so, I. Uh, have to talk about uh, Thanksgiving in the New Testament. But first off, I'm going to uh, kind of veer into the modern world a little bit because nobody else uh, got to give some examples of that. Uh, just uh, some definitions here. Uh, I looked up thanks or thank in the dictionary on the, on the Google, and uh, it's a grateful feeling or acknowledgement of a benefit. And so then I looked up gratitude, and that's a quality of being thankful, uh, readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness. So gratitude and thank or thanks kind of are interchangeable. They, they use each other's root words in their definitions. So um, that got me thinking, why, why should I be grateful? Or why should I be thankful? And uh, once again, the the Google came in handy again, and I started looking up a little bit of science behind this. And there's there's thousands of studies that have been done by people that are in college that get paid big bucks to study people and figure out what's going on in their heads when they're thankful. And I think about every college has done about a hundred of these studies, and the thing that I kept seeing in over over and over again in these studies was that thankful people are just happier. That's just how it is. 
and they scanned their brains and looked at what lights up when they're thankful or when they're grateful and there's different parts of the brains that fire and different uh, chemicals get released that make you feel good and um, yeah grateful people are are happier that's just what it is and and then I started thinking about times that I'm not grateful and how grumpy I can get and like down in the dumps and and then uh, something good happens and I'm grateful for that and I begin to feel a little bit better about life and life looks a little better and yeah it's gratefulness and thankfulness make for a happier person so um so uh and now uh some reasons from the bible why we should be thankful um romans 1 20 to 23 i'm just going to read that real quick uh for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they had knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image and made him like to a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So, just that little scripture there, you see what happens. People, people that knew God and weren't thankful for, um, for God, they weren't grateful. They... They, they went down a long, long road of uh, just horrible things. And if you keep reading in, in Romans 1, you read about where all that led them because they weren't thankful for God and didn't worship him. And they, they kind of made an idol out of, uh, out of the things that God had created. <clears throat> and in, let's turn to Ephesians 5. And starting in verse 1. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also has also loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you, as become a saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And then uh, jumping down to verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. <clears throat> Here again, uh, you see Paul's talking, he's telling the uh, Ephesians that they need to get rid of all this sin and they need to start becoming more thankful and they need to be thankful for everything, not just when it's going right, not when it's just good, but in everything they're supposed to be giving thanks. 
Um, and that got me thinking about, can you be a selfish person and be thankful or grateful? And I don't think you can be, because if you're selfish, it's all about you. And when you're thankful, it's about what somebody did for you. You're, you're thankful for somebody else, for what somebody did to you. Maybe you didn't deserve it. So I guess selfishness and gratefulness are kind of opposites. And as I was thinking of some examples in the New Testament, I instantly thought of the, the ten lepers in, uh, in Luke 17. And their little story there. And I think I'm going to take the time to quickly read that. Luke 17, 11. And it came to pass as, as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there he met ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There were not found they are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath, hath made thee whole. So, I don't know what you guys know about leprosy, but back in the Bible times it was kind of a, a horrible disease. Now, now we've found cures for leprosy, and the cures take six months to a year to, to heal somebody of leprosy. So, Back in the Bible time, you probably weren't going to be healed from leprosy. You were going, you got kicked out of your town. You had to live outside of town, maybe with a bunch of other lepers. And leprosy is a, a disease that uh, attacks your nerves and your respiratory system and your skin and your eyes. And it uh, it causes sores and ulcers to grow around your ears and your eyes and yes generally a nasty disease that makes your face swell and you lose the ability to feel pain in your fingers or your toes which leads you to uh, get disease infections because you can't feel if you burn your finger or you chop your finger off you don't feel that and so often lepers were really sick because they were losing fingers and not knowing it. And Old Testament law said that these people got kicked out of the camp and they were declared unclean and had to walk around and say, unclean, unclean, wherever they went so that nobody that was clean would get close to them. And I think it was early on in Jesus' ministry, he actually touched a leper, which was a huge no-no and the Pharisees had a had a fit when he did that. But here these ten lepers are, they stayed pretty far away, but they asked to be healed. And Jesus um, told them to go to the priest so that they could be declared clean. And one of them turned around and came running back and thanked Jesus. 
And this guy was a Samaritan. Now, I don't know if the rest of the rest of the lepers were Jews or Samaritans, but this one guy, it, the Bible makes clear that he's a Samaritan. And the Samaritans and Jews did not get along very well. <clears throat> so, it's, sometimes it's hard to uh, remember to thank God when life is going great all of a sudden. You were down in the ditch and now you're you're up on top and it's all grand. We have to remember to give God thanks even in those moments. And another example of thankfulness I, I thought of was uh, Paul and Silas in Acts 16 when they got, when they got thrown in jail. And um, in Acts 16, they were, they were, uh, they were out preaching and they got caught up somehow and thrown in jail for the night and instead of pouting around about being thrown in jail and they were thrown in jail uh, wrongfully they were beaten they were tossed in jail without a trial and Paul was a Roman I'm not sure if Silas was but it, it makes it sound like he was and Romans did not have to go to jail without a trial first and um, instead of pouting around about this, Paul and Silas started praying and they, they sang praises unto God and you know, we know how the story went, there was an earthquake and they could have ran away but instead they stayed and helped, uh, they converted the jailer and his family and that's um, yeah remembering to thank God when you're uh, yeah, when your life is a wreck or something is uh yeah you thank god for whatever you're going through there's always something to be thankful about and a uh another example of thankfulness is in revelation 4 and um i think i'll take the time to read the whole chapter because it's uh such a good tra chapter I, I like this chapter <clears throat> After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as, as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which, which must be hereafter. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was in, set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like un, an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeding lightnings and thunderings and voice and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a, a flying eagle. <clears throat> and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and and they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, 
holy, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, and the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before their throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they, they are and were created. <clears throat> so, in heaven, apparently, there's four beasts. And their entire job is to worship and thank God and give him glory and honor day and night. Forever, I guess. Uh, I don't know, that's quite, a, quite the thing going on. Um, gets me excited and even the four and twenty elders are are joining in in that and there's just a large giving of thanks for everything that God has done and um, thinking about Thanksgiving and you know we think of Thanksgiving we sit around with family we eat food and the um, marriage supper at uh, the lamb at the end of Revelation I guess you could say is a big Thanksgiving feast too, where we're all getting together to with our family, all sitting around. We're giving thanks to God for every everything He has done. Um, so, my challenge to you guys is to uh, make sure you give God thanks for everything He's done. Uh, it's not because of uh, things you have done that you're alive today. I mean, somebody has done something that brought you here to this place or um yeah god's giving you the breath uh, you have right now and um yeah be grateful grateful people are happier so that's all i have When you go to the doctor, usually he will put you on the scales, weigh you, and measure you. If we had a scales here that measured your gratitude this evening and each of you had to step on it before you walked out the door, I wonder what it would read. Where do you think your gratitude level is? I think the uh, one thought that stood out to me this evening and from several different speakers is that the more we focus on ourselves, the less grateful we tend to be, and the more we focus on God, the more grateful we tend to be. I'd like to close with prayer, and then after prayer, let's sing um, one verse of I thank the Lord my maker, and then you will be dismissed. So let's stand and pray, and then we'll sing the song. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings to us, and uh, thank you that you are God, and that we have the privilege of focusing on you in spite of ourselves and in spite of things around us. And we just thank you this evening uh, for who you are and that you are here. And I pray that our lives would reflect your glory and your goodness from day to day. Go with us from here. Pray your blessing on each person. Give us safety. And may we glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I thank the Lord, my Maker, for. 